Well, according to a recent Barna study, uh, the share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half uh, since 2000. And for the first time ever, according to Gallup, less than half of, uh, half of Americans say they are members of a church or any house of worship. Um, that's down from 70% in 1999. So the number of churchgoers uh, in this country is shrinking, raising really critical concerns uh, that we need to address and that we're going to actually um, consider tonight. So it's in this environment uh, that gone for good, and you've had a chance to, to really to get to know this book, and I encourage you to, um, you're going to hear from some contributors, and we have a book table. Um, it's this book that really explores ways that churches are um, transitioning and transforming their church properties to serve their neighborhoods. And tonight we're going to hear from Mark Elsden, who's the editor of this book, and three contributors. And I did mention the book table. Gene is over there. Um, we have books for a suggested donation, both um, Gone for Good, which is the book we're focusing on tonight, Mark's previous book, uh, entitled We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry, as well as uh, a table set up with rooted good materials uh, that will talk uh, that talk a lot and will help you think through church property transition, so, and a lot of other things as well. So I invite you to take a look at the, the rooted uh, good table as well, and Mark can, can, can help with that after the program. I have the utmost respect for Mark. He's just been a real pillar uh, on this campus, uh, the, the, the campus ministry setting. Um, he's assembled an amazing uh, group of contributors, and they have really gotten to know each other as friends. So I think that's really great. He might say a little bit more about how they met. I'm also delighted that Erica Lou is here as well. Um, Erica co-leads um, Prez House, and um, I know your fingertips are all over this book as well. And um, and and uh, Mark and Erica together lead that that ministry. Um, and then I think Sophie's here, um, their youngest daughter. And then I think Emma is potentially uh, dialed in from Fordham University. So. We're just super excited to welcome the whole family tonight. Well, it's my privilege now to introduce my colleague, uh, Gene Guerin, who will give us a little bit of the lay of the land for tonight, and we'll introduce Mark. Thanks, John. Uh, it's really wonderful to see everybody here. Um, I am going to just give you a little bit of Mark's bio, um, but before I do, I wanted to just give you a plan for the evening. Um, after I introduce him, Mark is going to share, uh, introduce the book to us all, um, give us some broad brushstrokes that way. And then he's going to be in charge of uh, introducing our three other panelists. Each of them will have about 10 minutes for their presentations on their chapters and maybe other other parts of the book. And after they're done, um, I'll come back up with Mark and Kurt and the, the panelists, and we'll have a, a question and answer period. So we're hoping to target that at about 7. We'll, we'll regroup for the Q&A. John's going to be helping to take your questions out there. And then uh, for the folks online, uh, please be sending your questions through the chat function and I will be monitoring those and presenting those to the panelists as well. So it is a real honor and privilege to introduce Mark Elston to you. Uh, he's the executive director of Press House and Press House Apartments. He's co-founder of Rooted Good, which supports church leaders working on property development money and mission alignment, and social enterprise. 
He's author, as John said, of the of another book, We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry. He's got a BA in psychology from UC Berkeley. He's got a master in divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and an MBA from UW's business school here. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and he lives here in Madison with his family. So I'd like to invite you up, Mark, and we're really looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, greetings to those watching online on the live stream. I'm honored, humbled that you took time to get here, especially in the icy roads that we have here in Madison and or have responded to my twisting your arm to show up. But either way, thanks. Thanks for being here. And a big thanks to everyone at Upper House um, for hosting. We're doing quite the technological dance here tonight. And uh, so really grateful for you and, uh, and your hospitality. As anyone who has put a book together knows, it is a labor of love and uh, the work of a community of people. That's particularly true in the case of this book. And so before I go any further, I want to first thank some of the key people that helped us arrive at this day. First and foremost, I'm incredibly grateful for the contributors to this book who have shared their insights, their experience, and many, many gifts with me and the readers of the volume. In addition to the words that they share on the pages of the book, these authors are doing an incredible and important work around the country to bring about more good in the world. And in my view, the foreword that Dr. Willie James Jennings wrote for the book is actually worth the price of the book alone. I'm humbled, inspired, and grateful for their partnership on this project. I'm blessed to work for two organizations that are incredibly supportive of me as a person in this project, Press House here in Madison and uh, Rooted Good, which was mentioned a moment ago. My board and staff team at Press House provide the support and flexibility to make a project like this possible. And I cannot overstate how vital my colleagues at Rooted Good have been in bringing this book about. I'm grateful to the team at Erdman's Publishing for entertaining the idea for this book so soon after my first book, We Aren't Broke, was published, and of course for guiding me through all of the process and the pages along the way. And a special thanks to Kote Sorens, who not only wrote an excellent chapter, but also did the beautiful illustrations that are found throughout the book. If you haven't had a chance, just take a look at it over there on the table. And we're really lucky to hear from her tonight. Finally, I'm thankful for all the pastors, church leaders, and church buildings that have touched me and my family over the years. 20 years from now, some of them may be gone, but the mark that they have left will remain. And God has worked through you, and for that, I am grateful. And in the end, it is uh, a joy to share my life um, with my spouse and co-pastor Erica Liu and my daughters Emma and Sophie. And I have to thank them for putting up with, yes, another book um, in our life. So, so what is this book about and why the title Gone for Good? The question that keeps me up at night is this. 20 years from now, when we look around our neighborhoods and we realize that a third or more of our church properties are no longer churches, what will we have lost or gained? And what will the impact be on the spiritual and social fabric of our communities? I wonder and worry about this in part because as I reach middle age and look back on my life, I realize that churches and their buildings have played a huge role 
in shaping who I am today. Not just in my spiritual life, but in my pro- or as my, in my profession as a pastor, but in big ways and small, in the profound and the mundane. Anyone who knows me well knows that despite the fact that I am an ordained minister, I'm full of critique, skepticism, sometimes it tips over into cynicism about the church. But there is no denying that churches have made me who I am today and changed the trajectory of my life many times, even before I was born. It's likely that I got my surname from a tiny church in a tiny village in the rolling green hills of northern England near the Scottish border. The story goes like this. In the early 18th century, an orphan baby was left on the doorstep of St. Cuthbert's Church in the village of Elsdon. The vicar, the pastor, took the baby in and named him Cuthbert Elsdon after the 7th century saint who gave the church its namesake and after the village. Thus started the Elsdon line. My family name was born out of grace in a moment of need on the steps of a church. My parents were born and raised in the Newcastle area of Northeast England, not far from the village of Elston. When they immigrated to the United States from my father's work, they knew nobody. So one of the first places they went to was church. One Sunday morning after attending for a few months, they decided to invite some of their newfound acquaintances over to their home. Chatting amiably after uh, worship service, probably in a space like this, they offered their invitation to a handful of couples. Would you like to come over next Saturday night to share a joint? Their invitation was met with silence, maybe some chuckles, awkward looks. My parents were confused by the lack of enthusiasm for this invitation. Is it us? Is it our accent? It took a little while to figure out where the misunderstanding lay, but eventually it dawned on them, oh, no, not that kind of a joint. A joint of roast beef and some Yorkshire pudding. Would you like to come over for dinner? Those friendships survived my parents' offer of drugs at church, and that congregation became a vital source of community and relationship for a young immigrant couple making a new life thousands of miles from home. So that church and others like it um, played pivotal roles in my life as I grew up. During middle school, I made my best friends at church and trekked mud from the creek nearby throughout the entire building more than once. During high school, I would regularly bring half of my cross-country running team to the gym of another church for a rigorous game of basketball while we were supposed to be out on long runs. A friend from yet another church invited me to go to, on a youth group trip to ride our 10-speed bikes in the mountains of Colorado for a week, sleeping in, yes, more churches every night. I left that week and the follow-up trips each summer with an increasing love for cycling and for God. I was taught about the faith and at least occasionally attended services at these churches, but church was more than that. It was a place to find friends, to play basketball, to get dirty, to be reprimanded kindly. Later, as I finished high school and went to college, churches played a more formative role in my life than even my university experience. In Berkeley, California, I became friends with people experiencing homelessness through a program my roommate and I started at a church. 
My privilege was illuminated and challenged meeting people attending churches in rural Dominican Republic, mountains of Ethiopia, cities in France, and black, indigenous, and immigrant churches throughout the United States. And like so many, I owe my married life and amazing children to a church community because I met my future spouse, Erica, volunteering at a church meal for people experiencing food insecurity. While training as a pastor in seminary, Erica and I worked at a Taiwanese Presbyterian church, which afforded me the chance to see how churches play a special role in the social fabric of marginalized and immigrant communities. Presbyterian churches have supported the independence of Taiwan for many decades, engaging not just in the spiritual or eternal, but in the very present and pressing realities of living under occupation and threat. In the United States, immigrant churches serve as family, community center, language training, support group, Google search bar, and so much more. Today, I have the great privilege of serving at Press House, a campus ministry and housing community, literally just across the street, right there across University Avenue. The ministry has been around for almost 120 years. During the campus protests of the 1960s that took place just steps from here on the University Library Mall, student activists and 20-year-old National Guard troops left their respective signs and guns on the steps outside of Press House. Young people from both sides of a conflict that they hadn't started but were players in would come inside for coffee and a safe respite from the unrest outside. I've spent countless nights sleeping on other church floors during service learning trips with college students all over the country, and churches from all around Madison support our ministry by providing the only home-cooked meal that many students eat each week. My life has been impacted by literally hundreds of churches. While I imagine this is more than the average American, churches and their buildings play a vital role in the social infrastructure of communities in every corner of the country. Even many who have never attended a worship service are often directly or indirectly touched by a church building. So what happens when churches are gone? As Eileen Lindner explains in the opening chapter of the book, as many as 100,000 church buildings and billions of dollars of church-owned property could be sold or repurposed throughout the United States by 2030. That amounts to a quarter or a third or even 40% of the churches out there. It's difficult to get precise data on exactly how many church properties will be sold because nobody's tracking it in any systematic way. As John mentioned at the beginning, researchers are making projections about the future of religious affiliation in the United States. You may have seen the news about a new model by the Pew Research Center that predicts if recent trends continue, Christians will make up fewer than half of the U.S. population by 2070 or maybe even less. There are, of course, new churches starting every year, but as of 2019, we have entered into an era where more churches close each year than are opened. Now, let me be clear. I do not believe that God is going away. God is not declining. Some churches will grow. New churches will be planted. Not all churches will close. People still want to experience the transcendent, the divine. They still crave and thrive in caring community. They still want to be involved in causes and activities that are larger than themselves and that change lives for the better. 
But the reality is that fewer and fewer people want to experience those things in a Sunday morning worship service followed by Sunday school class. Which means there are too many church buildings with too much space than will be viable or needed in the future. These buildings and properties will have to become something else, or they'll just sit empty and unused. Like the decline of the indoor shopping mall or the closure of blockbuster video rental stores when Netflix came onto the scene, churches are closing and property owned by churches is changing at a speed and scale never seen before. The data and my experience working with church leaders around the country from across the denominational spectrum is very clear. We are facing a massive tsunami of church closure and property reuse rising up before us. The transition is happening. We are long past the days of revitalizing every church in order to keep them all open and operating buildings that are too large or needing a huge renovation. This transition is happening in every part of the country and across all denominational and theological lines. Again, to reiterate, I'm not saying that new churches won't be planted or the church revitalization can happen. You'll hear a beautiful story from Reverend Joe Daniels in a few minutes about how developing affordable housing on church land helped his congregation grow. But broadly speaking, throughout communities everywhere in the country, and most certainly here in Madison, church properties are going to become something different on a massive scale, whether we like it or not. The wave is upon us. And this transition in church property is a once in a many generation shift. As that property is sold or becomes something else, it won't go back to being a church again in any foreseeable future. So the question before us is this, after the wave of sale and repurpose crashes upon the shore, what will we be left with when the water flows back out to sea? What will our neighborhoods look like? After the wave has receded, will church property have further contributed to injustice and the widening gap between rich and poor? Or will we have put our creativity and energy into new uses that leave communities more connected, more just, and with new programs and support that bring light and life into people's lives? If 40 out of 100 churches in a city are something else in 20 years, what will be lost and what could be gained? Where will the local Girl Scout troop or neighborhood association meet? Where do people go when grieving yet another mass shooting? Millions of people meet lifelong friends and partners at churches, get access to financial services not available to them through traditional banking, or pick up food when bills are tight. And where will we vote? Churches are not just vital spiritual resources in a community, they provide vital social services that touch lives far beyond their parishioners. In his chapter, Robert Yeager writes about a series of studies that Partners for Sacred Places conducted looking at what they called a halo effect of churches in a community. They found almost 3.7 million people visited just 90 churches in one year. Only 9% of those visits were for worship. 91% was for something else. The study also found that on average, each church provided more than $4 million of economic value to its community each year. That's the number of value created as they are now, even in decline in aggregate. What will replace churches on those properties that become something else? I don't want to look back 
20 years from now and regret the huge loss of spiritual and social fabric that churches provide or have missed an opportunity to do new wonderful things with these properties. I don't want all the beautiful church spaces that were built for community life to be replaced by privately owned condo buildings making money for already wealthy people or to just stand empty with a fence around them while the stones crumble and community groups can't find anywhere to meet. There's a significant risk that wide-scale transition of church property will leave us with less support for the most vulnerable, greater inequality, fewer spiritual resources, and other losses. Church properties very well could end up gone for good, gone forever, leaving social or spiritual little social or spiritual good in their place. But that doesn't have to be the outcome. The situation is not all doom and gloom. This is also a moment of extraordinary opportunity. The Christian story is one of death and resurrection, of new life and a new future. As daunting and deeply sad as this wave of transition is, there's also an incredible opportunity to think about the mission of the church in a more expansive manner to make greater use of church buildings and land to serve our neighborhoods, and to extend the light of God's grace in beautiful ways that are very, very good. I've had the blessing and privilege of being a part of a number of church property transitions that have led to new and good things emerging. Many of you know the story of Press House, where we developed the Press House apartment student housing facility on a church-owned parking lot financed by church investment funds. We house residents in a sober living recovery community, provide wellness and health support. We give out meals to students on campus who are food insecure and serve as a home away from home for thousands of college students each year. We've given away about a million dollars in scholarships to, to residents in the last decade. While weekly Sunday worship does remain central to our mission, we've gone much deeper and wider with our ministry, transforming areas of students' lives that previously were absent from. The adaptive reuse of our property transformed a dormant and worn campus ministry center that was almost sold into a vibrant, impactful, and financially sustainable ministry. And through my work at Rooted Good, I've watched churches around the country go through our Good Futures Accelerator course and come out on the other side with all kinds of incredible ideas for the use of their buildings and land that is extending their ministry into the community in new and powerful ways, and generating new revenue. Congregations are serving young entrepreneurs by converting fellowship halls into co-working spaces, drawing people into community who would never attend a worship service. They're organizing co-op grocery stores to address food deserts in their neighborhoods in a sustainable way. They're opening childcare centers for teenage mothers. They're creating lawn care services, bike shops, music venues, and fair trade stores or they're building housing, sometimes for students, sometimes for seniors, sometimes for lower income neighbors who've been priced out of the market. One recently closed church near Portland, Oregon was just given to a coalition of Native American groups so that they can build tiny homes for indigenous women and children experiencing homelessness. Repurposing church property is a chance to do something new. It allows us to think differently to see more vividly, to listen more deeply, and love more fully. It's an opportunity to take the good news outside of the Sunday worship service. The transition of church property is one of the largest issues facing the church today, but it's also one of our greatest opportunities. 
Yes, churches, buildings, and property will be gone. Of this, there is no doubt. But more than that, I'm incredibly hopeful that new and good things will emerge, and they will be gone for good. So let me close my comments with a brief word about the book itself and how it came together with the 19 incredible contributors. I don't know about you, but I've always loved the children's tale about stone soup. You know that story? There's many different versions that approach it from different cultural perspectives, but in general, the outline usually goes like this. A group of travelers, three or four, arrive in a village carrying only a cooking pot. They set the pot on a fire in the middle of the village and fill it with water. Then they drop in a stone. They begin cooking the stone soup. At first, the villagers sort of peer out the window and they're like wondering what the heck is going on, but then curiosity gets the better of them. They come out to see what's happening and they look in the pot and they see there's just a stone in it. And they say, well, that, that's not going to taste very good. So then they run back inside and they start to grab ingredients. One by one, they add something. One brings some garlic, another some greens, another a carrot. Eventually, almost everyone in the village has brought an ingredient and the soup smells amazing. What started out as a stone in a pot has become this delectable soup through this collaborative contribution of the diversity of people. In many ways, this book is like a written version of stone soup. I have personally brought very little to the project besides the stone, <laughs> the driving question. I dropped that stone into the pot and the authors have contributed their incredible ingredients. As you read the book, you will find that while all the authors care deeply about churches, only a few of them are theologians, pastors, or traditional church people. You will hear from property developers and urban planners, philanthropists, real estate professionals, and more. And this is intentional. I invited these people to contribute their unique ingredients to the soup that is this book because that's exactly how this work is going to have to happen in the real world too. A soup made up entirely of celery wouldn't be particularly tasty, but one that includes varied and complementary ingredients can be sublime. I'm so grateful to be joined today by three of the contributors to Gone for Good. I wish we could hear from all of them this evening, but you're going to want to go home at some point, and I suppose that hearing from them all is actually why we wrote the book. So we will hear first from Reverend Joe Daniels, who is the lead pastor at Emory Fellowship and developer of the Beacon Center in Washington, D.C. Emory Fellowship, under Joe's leadership, completed a remarkably long, complicated, and hugely impactful affordable housing development on their church land, which has brought transformation to their neighborhood and their congregation. Their story gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Then we'll hear from Cote Sorens, who recently moved from the Seattle area to Chicago. She is a social innovator at the Center for Transformative Neighborhoods at Trinity Christian College. Cote is a community organizer with particular experience in how underrepresented communities make use of underutilized church buildings and land or could if they were given the chance. Finally, we were here from a Madison neighbor, Kurt Paulson. Kurt is a professor of urban planning here at UW-Madison and an expert in housing policy, affordable housing, zoning, and related topics. So I invite you to just sit in and listen to these great insights um, that these practitioners, researchers, and authors have to offer. Thanks. Well, it's good to be with everyone tonight. I hope everyone can hear me and see me. It is an honor and privilege to be 
in your midst. My name is Joe Daniels, uh, as Mark has said, and congratulations to you, Mark. Uh, we are really excited about this night and about this day. Uh, my chapter happens to be on legacy. Uh, legacy is, in fact, a, a Middle English word that means person delegated. And I find that uh, I have been amongst one of, of 400 people at the Emory United Methodist Church, effectively called the Emory Fellowship, uh, who has, in fact, been a person delegated. Just a, a, a brief uh, uh, introduction of, of my story. I uh, pastor a congregation that uh, almost closed on two occasions and was almost sold on three occasions. Um, and the only thing keeping us open was the rental of our fellowship hall from a private school across the street. Uh, we were a church where the grass hadn't been cut for six years, where we were surrounded by broken alcohol bottles and, and beer cans mashed into the ground. Uh, on Sunday mornings, it was very, very uh, frequent that we would smell urine on the steps, find uh, used syringes and used condoms in the stairwells of our church. Uh, we were a dump, uh, and uh, the threat of closure was very, very real. But uh, our story is one of resurrection, as Mark had indicated earlier. Uh, and we went from 55 people in worship uh, to uh, over 400 people uh, in the matter of uh, 15 to 20 years. I've been at Emory now for a little over 31 years, uh, an anomaly in the United Methodist Church. Uh, but in that time and in that period of resurrection, uh, we kept hearing a mission from the community that I needed an affordable place to live. I needed an affordable place to live. As a congregation of 20 different nationalities, predominantly black, uh, but working class people, we also had to make some serious decisions because we found ourselves in the midst of gentrification. Downtown development was pressing us on one side, uh, and then development, uh, downtown development in Washington, D.C., the city we're in, was pressing us. And then downtown development from Silver Spring, Maryland, which was a, a, uh, an emerging downtown area in Maryland, just two miles north of us, was pressing us from that point. So we found ourselves as a piece of meat in between two pieces of bread, and we had to do something. We had to decide, are we going to move? Are we going to leave the city and go to the greener pastures in the suburbs? Or are we going to settle here in the midst of this neighborhood in Northwest Washington, D.C., uh, where we had all types of urban blight around us? Are we going to make this thing work? And are we going to survive as a church? We began uh, a listening campaign in community and began listening to what our neighbors needed and wanted and what uh, 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 that vision might be in, in, in context with vision that God was speaking through congregants uh, and which God was speaking through the city. And everything began to line up toward affordable housing. We had already started housing people who were homeless in our church. Uh, we had established a transitional housing ministry. Uh, and people wanted to expand it. And we began looking at property up and down Georgia Avenue, where our church is located. Uh, and every time we would get close to settlement, the deal would fall through until one of our members said, why don't we just build right here? And none of us had ever thought about repurposing our property right where we were. We didn't even know that we could. But after doing some surveys and after doing some uh, 
investigative reporting, we quickly found out that we had uh, a humongous space because we could build up. And so we began the process of development. We began to carry out legacy. And, and as, I, as I indicated, uh, my chapter is uh, Legacy Can Lead to Life. And we found that that took place and is taking place in our midst. That word legacy, again, means persons delegated, but it also means persons delegated uh, on a mission, on a mission to do something. And soon as, as we uh, pursued this, we began uh, discovering that our mission was, in fact, to provide affordable housing for people who were in the margins of society, who were marginalized and disenfranchised, who were poor, who were homeless, who were the working poor, who were gradually yet consistently being displaced from the District of Columbia, which is now one of the most expensive cities to live in. And so we began the process. We began uh, 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 pursuing uh, what it would take to, to build uh, new housing. We had to go through historic preservation because our church sits on a very historic site. We sit next to Fort Stevens, which is the only fort that a, a sitting president visited during wartime, Abraham Lincoln. Fort Stevens at that time during Civil War was the only fort that defended the White House on the northern side of the city where our church is located. Uh, and if the Confederate Army, history uh, 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 tells us, got past uh, Fort Stevens, history would have been rewritten. As, it, as it, uh, history is told, the Union Army was able to fight off uh, the Confederate Army and, and, and we were able to maintain the democracy that we have today. In the midst of all of that, we thought we had dealt with historic issues and historic preservation and wanting to build our site, but we were landmarked as we were about to begin construction on the process, on the project. As we went through the project and fought uh, the landmark, uh, we began to learn that our mission of seeking to house people who were marginalized and disenfranchised was in fact a mission that history had covered up, but that as we were fighting the historic preservation landmark to try to stop our project, we uncovered. Uh, our church is on property that is, 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 is very, very grounded, very much grounded in American history and slavery in racism and the like. Uh, our property sits uh, on what was known as Vinegar Hill, uh, which was a part of the Fort Stevens community, but was also considered uh, an enclave for free uh, blacks and runaway slaves. White folks begin the history of our church and of our property in 1833 when our church started uh, in a red brick house but as we went further in the history, trying to get beyond the historical landmark placed upon us, we discovered that our land had been owned from 1800 by a free black woman by the name of Elizabeth Proctor Thomas, who is affectionately known as Aunt Betty. And we found out that what Aunt Betty was doing all the way back to 1800 prior to the Civil War which is where our, pro again, our, our property finds its history, 
he was actually housing free blacks and runaway slaves. She was essentially providing affordable housing to free blacks, to runaway slaves, to people who were in the margins of society being displaced because they had no other place to live. And so we stuck to our mission in the midst of all that. We had people who were threatening us, uh, saying, you need to just close. We had other people saying, you need to build market rate housing. But we found ourselves as people grounded in a legacy, persons delegated to carry out a mission that we would end up discovering had started some 250 plus years prior to us, but a mission that we ended up finding ourselves tapping into that enabled us to get over the landmark, to get over the challenges to stop our project and to open a 99 uh, unit, fully affordable $60 million affordable housing project for people being displaced from the city called the Beacon Center. Today, we are able to house people at 60% of the average median income, which is fully affordable housing in a city where the average two bedroom apartment is $3,400 a month. We've been able to construct luxury apartments, luxury apartments where the highest rent for a three bedroom apartment is just 1500 a month. And where people who are living $70,000 or less a year, families up to four, are able to live affordably and are not being displaced. Suddenly around us, around our church building, are anywhere from 260 to 300 people who are now laughing and smiling, kids running up and down the street laughing and smiling because our church had the audacity to live out legacy to believe that our church could be repurposed and that we could in fact make a difference in our neighborhood and in our city and carve a different pathway for a church that was about to close, but now one that is looked at, looked upon as a leader in the city around affordable housing, church repurposing, and the revitalization of people's lives. I'm so honored and humbled to be able to write this chapter, Legacy Can Lead to Life. I'm so humbled and honored to be a part of this great project that Mark Elsden is doing. So great to be with everyone this evening. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Cote Sorens, and um, that, um, I, I had a chance to listen to this story before that John Daniels just shared, but it, it is so inspiring. And I think it tells us, um, it's also a really great example of a congregation or of a church of, of, that was aware of the responsibility with uh, the land they they owned and they, they, they had at their also for the for their community. Um, my chapter uh, on this book is um, is titled "Who Wants a Building Anyway?" Um, and it came that chapter came from myself having a, a glimpse into the future a little bit. Um, I um, I used to live in Seattle in a red lined neighborhood uh, called South Park. And where I got to experience something quite 
um, unique, I would say, um, which was a neighborhood without the availability of affordable space to encourage community. And when we have too much of something, we assume that it's always there, which is what um, my experience was of listening to people who are in charge of, in charge of church buildings and are the nominational executives. It seems that there's something about having had land available to you for a long time that makes you and appreciate uh, the power and the responsibility uh, that you have with the with the church building. Um, in the neighborhood where I was in South Park, um, the community was very lively. Uh, it was a um, neighborhood of immigrants and of um, low income younger people and um, it was very strictly engaged uh, but it was clear that um, for all this um, engagement and and energy to to build things um, the built environment the buildings around in the neighborhood didn't quite reflect uh, who we were as as other people and didn't really um, provide much spaces for uh, residents to do what they needed to do, which was um, host meetings or uh, make art um, events uh, or just gather with others to just connect. Um, and um, through this experience, um, it became apparent the, that um, that's something that often gets missed uh, among denominational executives is that um, churches and their church buildings are already part of a community. No matter how congregations see themselves, uh, no matter what beliefs they have with regards to how they engage the neighborhood around them, they are part of that community by, by way of their property. Um, so the way we use, the way congregations use their building, that says more about who they are as neighbors, as Christians, than anything else um, they could say verbally. Uh, so that was clear uh, to me in my neighborhood. We had three church buildings that were completely inaccessible to community. One of them was sold um, rather without much thought which created a huge loss for that community and its place to, to gather just youth programming. And the other two um, didn't seem to understand um, the value of that uh, communal space in that neighborhood. So it was, they were also shut down and eventually sold, uh, also inaccessible for the community. Um, because of this, uh, being a Christian in the neighborhood, um, I engaging a number of place making uh, opportunities or, or projects um, I, I because we didn't have access to this kind of a space um, I started projects that using whatever we we had so I started a coffee shop in the neighborhood that created space for community called Resistance Coffee um, and we were able to do a number of different things with real estate in that neighborhood that open real estate for um, neighborhood flourishing um, but the, the two main, um, takeaways, I guess, for this conversation, uh, would be those that, um, 
congregations and their buildings are part of the neighborhood and also are part of the narratives of, narratives of land use in that city. When you are in a red line neighborhood, um, you can easily see how um, um, land has been used to um, sometimes marginalize, further marginalized and further exploit certain communities in that city. Um, denominations have a wide scope sometimes to plan where they're going to invest um, for facilities. And that also gets reflected back in the map of um, a city where you can see the concentration of public space and amenities by income and race that is mirrored too by congregations. So um, in, as, as, as congregations are um, having to deal with what to do with their buildings, um, I thought um, a good idea to propose two um, pointers as far as um, ways to think about this conversation. One is um, I found that um, um, the mission of the church uh, and who we understand ourselves to be in that community matters a lot with, with how we go about our building. And to understand ourselves as a neighbor as a loving neighbor to a community, um, actually can instill a different kind of imagination for what you do with your building. Um, in the chapter, I'm referring to this way of thinking as a place-based ecclesiology. Basically, how do you understand um, your mission as a church, not in the abstract or your own spiritual life, but as the body of Christ? Who are we as a congregation in that community? Um, so when we take place as an organizing principle for mission, we can easily and very concretely see the effects of who we are and how we worship and how we engage in the life of the community around us. Um, so within a place-based mindset, we begin to ask the question of how are we to be, how are we to love our neighbors very literally? That grounds the conversation and it sparks the imagination um, and allows a congregation to um, really engage and love, look outside of, of ourselves and look at the people uh, in our neighborhood who also have imagination and plans and priorities uh, that can actually be really um, listened to and, and, and integrated into an imagination of what to do with these buildings. How are we to reframe or reshape this space to serve the priorities and needs and visions and dreams uh, of this community? And more importantly, the dreams that God may have for this neighborhood as far as, um, the, as, far as access to food, access to health, access to housing, access to friendship, access to nourishing, uh, re uh, nourishing relationships. Um, so uh, that is one piece of it. And the second uh, framework that I found really useful or uh, to respark a different kind of imagination is uh, to really understand the restorative role that land can have um, in a city and in a community. Land has been used uh, for wealth creation in this country and it has not been usually accessible. Uh, to people of uh, marginalized groups or other races, we have a we don't have a neutral history of land ownership in this country. 
and um, as the body of Christ, we really need to wrestle with both how we have benefited from that history in the amount of land that we have, but also how is this an opportunity to reveal the narrative of land ownership? Um, and that is, of course, a big question and, 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 and for congregations too, uh, what are, to know what frameworks are out there that could be helpful to this conversation. Um, might be useful to put a few examples. Um, one of the uh, frameworks that I present in my chapter is, is equitable development as um, a way of thinking beyond, um, includes um, access to housing, but also is it basically thinks about the flourishing of a place in its economics, access to housing, access to healthy food, access to play, access to spending time with your neighbors and developing relationships that will sustain you. Um, how are these neighbor neighborhoods and the in their built environment sustaining the life of a community in equitable ways? Um, so I, I use these two concepts, place-based ecclesiology and equitable development to invite both congregations and denominations to think strategically around how they can utilize the real estate for um, the restoration of people and land and neighborhoods. Um, so I put some examples there. Um, I my story is the story of what um, a group of Christians did without access to buildings, um, but with that kind of imagination, we were able to do um, uh, placemaking um, projects such as uh, Resistance Coffee, which was a project uh, by South Park for South Park. Um, in it became a space that created a platform for community for um for uh, food businesses for artists um and eventually that community creation uh resulted in um us doing some listening and organizing uh for um community-based groups to be able to buy um a quarter of a block in seattle which has a really really aggressive real estate market uh, so that um, purchase of that land was uh, helped stabilize the commercial real estate and also buy the community time to think how they wanted to shape the future of the neighborhood. Um, and in addition to that, uh, my neighborhood, as many across the United States, uh, was uh, um, decimated by highways. Back in the 60s and 50s, many highways were built through red line neighborhoods. Um, and there is a whole movement across the nation uh, to um, restore from highways to boulevard. Um, we were able to mobilize funding for our community envisioning to hopefully maybe uh, decommission this this highway, but to reclaim 40 acres of land for equitable development. So um, all of these projects were possible, really following an imagination that um, was um, with loving one's neighbor very literally at the center of um, of our vision uh, and visioning, um, and and having a having a, um, an understanding of uh, land as a means both that can be a means to both oppress or a means to restore and liberate. Um, so that is that is my story. <laughs> Thank you, Cote and Joe. Um, 
My name is Kurt Paulson. I'm a professor here of urban planning, and I mostly do housing. And so uh, part of how I got involved in this process was Mark uh, invited me for a conversation, said he was writing a book about this, and I had one of those aha moments, which is realizing that these type of property transitions we're talking about, they happen all the time anyway uh, in cities, whether we're talking about disinvestment and blight or gentrification, whether we're talking about uh, NIMBYs and sprawl and traffic. This is kind of the bread and butter of urban planning, um, but I felt completely ignorant about the whole process that churches were going through this process. And as soon as he explained it to me, it made sense, right? And so for a lot of churches involved in this urban property transition, for some of them, it's being imposed upon them, either because the neighborhood they're living in is changing or because their congregation is losing numbers. But I think what you also see a lot in the book is that there's a lot of churches that are really rethinking, how can we use this property that we have? Oftentimes, high-value property in a strategic location, not just to preserve the, the religious, the church use of the property, but to do some uh, social good. And so this, this opportunity of, of perhaps thousands of churches going through this process is really exciting, I would say, for urban planners, uh, for a couple of reasons that I talk about in the chapter, but one of which is, that it's very rare, particularly in strategic and downtown locations, that you have property owners who are really interested in social mission and community services and social good, not just in maximizing uh, economic return. And so that's really exciting, uh, but it's also pretty scary because uh, for many cities, uh, this is just one more thing that they have to think about that's going to change and transition. And if you're not ready for it, it's going to happen anyway. So most of my chapter is really trying to speak to urban planning world and saying, you need to pay attention to this, both because it's going to happen, thousands of churches are going to close, and what happens to those properties, but also because this is a huge potential with willing landowners and property developers to work collaboratively to do things like affordable housing or community serving space or a homeless shelter or food pantries. And so uh, what I do in the chapter is I basically do kind of five main reasons uh, why church properties are somewhat unique that we need to all think about as cities and, and local governments. So uh, moving very quickly, because if I start talking about zoning, right, you haven't had enough coffee yet. Phil's going to fall asleep right there. So but one of the reasons why a lot of these church property transitions are somewhat unique does deal with the underlying zoning. So there's a federal zoning law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or RELUPA, which gives churches and other religious groups certain protections from municipal zoning ordinance. This is one of the reasons why a lot of churches are located in residential neighborhoods. This is good. However, once a church wants to transition its use, such as building affordable housing, or uh, even developing a homeless shelter, that's a change in land use. That requires a rezoning process, a public planning process. The neighbors come out. People write letters to the editor. City council has long meetings. People post on next door, right? So the religious land use is protected, but the commercial land use is not, right? I'm 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 following a story of a city in Eau Claire. A church in Eau Claire wants to use its old Sunday school room for uh, apartments for homeless veterans. Well, that's a commercial land use. The neighbors love having a church nearby. Veterans experiencing homelessness, not so much, right? So once a church decides they're going to do something different with their property, either maintaining the religious land use or 
transitioning, uh, you're entering into the public planning process, the commercial real estate business, and that is messy, and that is complicated, and any goodwill you might have had might go out the window when the neighbors see that you're going to be developing high-density affordable housing uh, near the single-family neighborhood. Right, so the second reason is churches have unique architecture, oftentimes uh, gothic style or stained glass windows that contributes to a neighborhood sense of place. People like to drive by and look at these things. It also makes them really hard to do adaptive reuse of historic structures. So sometimes churches want to tear the building down and to build something new. Now you have a real problem with the neighbors and the sense of place. And I don't even have to mention the case on the Upper West Side with the celebrities. Uh, if you read your New York Times, you'll see that there's a church wanting to do this, um, and the celebrities want to maintain the church. But of course, an old historic building is really expensive to maintain. So even if you wanted to maintain it, you need additional revenue sources. So the third reason we should think about this is that most churches are actually located in pretty strategic urban locations, either along arterials, downtown, or on corners. So as planners, we salivate because this is the type of prime property for kind of transit accessibility, uh, scent placemaking, where you can do higher density. Right? The fourth reason cities should think about this is that churches are not experts in real estate zoning or property development. Right? So they're very unfamiliar with the process. There's cases in the book and cases we know of where churches go through this internal discernment. We want to do this. They're really happy. It's great. Then you get into the public process, and oh my goodness, the meetings, plan commission is going to alter your building facade, the neighbors, you're going to be, like Joe was talking about, suddenly a building that wasn't historic, the neighbors want to designate it as historic, right? That would never happen in Madison, would it? Sorry, let the reader understand. Uh, um, but so churches want to accomplish mission-driven goals with property transitions, but they don't have the expertise on staff. And so that's one area where I argue that cities and city planning departments, community development departments, can have a tremendous impact on this process by providing technical assistance, upfront assistance, if you will, a lot of hand-holding through the process, because if you don't do this process well, it can really go poorly. The book is filled with examples of processes that worked really well, but also some processes that didn't work as well. And so, again, where else are you going to find most a, a property owner who's wants to do community services and affordable housing as opposed to oftentimes as a planner trying to drag a developer along to do affordable housing or even to put in a, some uh, park space is oftentimes like pulling teeth. But churches need support. And the fifth reason is, again, as Kote as and Joe have mentioned, churches are oftentimes providers of a lot of community services, infrastructure, social services, whether from the Girl Scouts to uh, feeding the homeless. So I would always say to cities, if you're not planning for helping churches to maintain that civic infrastructure, you better be prepared for who's going to have to provide that when those churches are gone. Okay, so that cities need to really think about this proactively. Uh, one of the easy ways to do it is just to convene uh, a work group or a task force of cities uh, maybe some that have gone through the process, maybe some that are considering it, and help walk them through both what the public planning process would look like, you know, what is rezoning, how do you meet with the city planning staff, how does the architecture and, and building review process work, all the way to just creating a peer learning community 
where churches can work together. The second, of course, is in larger cities, perhaps a dedicated staff team providing assistance, providing uh, special access to perhaps pre-development funds or community development block grant funds, particularly to maintain the social service component of any future building transition. And the third thing I say in, in the chapter is that city planners should look at uh, churches and where they're going to redevelop, right? Because uh, Tyler Krupp Qureshi in, in one of the chapters writes about this issue that a lot of churches, again, are zoned. The underlying zoning is residential because they're in neighborhoods. Well, if you're not preemptively thinking about what are the infrastructure and redevelopment needs on those parcels if they redevelop, then what you're going to end up with is a case-by-case -case ad hoc process where every church has to try to go through a rezoning process, which is messy and complicated and all the neighbors show up. So, and then the, the fourth thing that's not in my chapter, but I would encourage you to read Nadia Mayan's chapter. Uh, she's also an urban planning professor at, at Rutgers, my alma mater out in, in New Jersey. Um, she talks about how city planners in San Diego worked with some of the churches and the denominations to really kind of think about what are some of the barriers to development of affordable housing in San Diego. And so they have this great case study of what's called the Yigby, right? You've heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard. This is Yigby, yes, in God's backyard, where they work together with city planning staff to create a new ordinance that says that in, if you're in a transit-oriented development area, right, within proximity of a transit station, churches that want to redevelop affordable housing have an elimination of parking requirements, right? And this really adds to the cost of building if you have to build parking. This is a real way to kind of give you extra uh, points in the development process. Seattle has something similar, an automatic density uh, upzoning bonus uh, if you build affordable housing near transit on a church-based property. So uh, there's a lot in this book that I also encourage any church that's thinking about this at all. Read the chapter by Philip Burns, uh, Jill Shook, and Andre White. Because they are real estate development consultants. They created this really specialized firm in Southern California that's fantastic. And what they do is they will work with churches and they have on staff a planner who helps them with site planning and development approval and entitlement. They have Jill who's worked with churches so she can really help them with the, the community engagement, the congregational engagement, the, the kind of theological wrestling with the issue. And then Andre is a, a finance and development specialist helps them put together a real estate development deal. Churches can get taken advantage of the, by this process. They can find the process frustrating and quit. They can also not maximize the value of what they think they can do on the land because they meet with a developer first and the developer is going to try to steer them towards their practice and their issues. And so any church that's considering this, you have to be prepared. Once you go through a process like this, you're in the public planning and real estate development process. You better have a team on your side who knows what they're doing and has a fiduciary responsibility to you, like an owner's rep if, you, if you're familiar with commercial real estate, right? And so this is a tremendously exciting process for a lot of churches, but we don't want them to be naive, right? And so once you do this, you're in this kind of urban planning world, and hopefully you can meet with all of my former students and planning students around the world who are urban planners, and they say, yes, we will work with you, we will help you, because together this represents a tremendous opportunity to create real good uh, with church properties. So, thank you.
Um, so I thought, Kote, uh, I'd like to start a, with a question for you to start us off. Um, we here at Upper House are doing a theme this spring on being a good neighbor. And you mentioned that a couple times in your presentation and in your chapter. And it struck me that almost every chapter ends with some sort of encouragement of building relationships of trust with people who are very different than yourself or, or your group. Um, so I wonder if you could share a little bit of maybe some suggestions of mechanisms that you've used to build those relationships, and then maybe also some questions around this particular uh, use of property and space. Like, what are some good questions to start those conversations and those relationships? Thank you. Um, yeah, it, as it happens with most... Um, with the most it, within the Christian tradition, I feel that uh, the most impactful things are the simples, the simplest of what, uh, ones that you can you can do. Um, being a good neighbor often means paying attention in a very um, generous, curious way. Um, so engaging in, in what we call often faithful presence. Being able to communicate that you are there without an agenda except for being present and listening and bearing witness to the life of this community, um, that is incredibly powerful. Um, being consistent, making sure that people can know where to find you, um, ask a lot of questions, um, engage in conversation, uh, do simple things with people. Um, if you are a parent and you have kids in at, in the school, just lean more into that. Uh, share life together with people um, in any way you can. And this sounds very simple, but as you know, many of us continue to experience in our society today, um, there isn't much of that. There isn't much space for real connection. Um, between neighbors today, this and I think this is it, it's always been powerful. But I think if you look at the loneliness crisis, uh, another um, another psychological problems that people are experiencing, I think this generation in particular were becoming incredibly aware of how power um, bearing witness and faithful presence with people in real places can be. Um, the posture of um, the posture that we learned from, and I'm speaking from the Christian tradition, because I'm a Christian, so these are the gifts from our tradition. Um, the posture of, of, of Jesus emptying himself to make room for his friends, for the life of his friend, is something that when it comes to real estate in particular, it's a good pointer. Uh, to listen for the purpose of actually listening and putting our, our own ideas and priorities on the side for a moment to open space for imagination and to open space for experiences and uses that might be different than what we were thinking about before. Um, but allowing room for discernment of the spirit um, with people. Um, that would be um, th that they're what... I would recommend anybody to engage in attention as a spiritual practice in the context of a real place with real people. 
um, they can be incredibly powerful. Great. Thank you. And I forgot to say that we are going to move to questions from the in-person crowd. John uh, Terrell has a mic. So as he's preparing, or if you have any questions, uh, let him know. Joe, you were nodding a bit there. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that relationship question before we move on? Uh, I'd simply agree with Cote. I believe relationships are the key to everything that we've been talking about tonight. Uh, it's through relationships that we find out what people need. It's through relationships that God speaks vision. And so unless we engage people in community, uh, we will not know what to do properly with the property that we have with the assets. Oh, may I say one more thing? Of course. Um, my friend, Diamond Hargis, who is a genius at this, um, he, what, years ago, uh, he came to visit me in my neighborhood and he's the one who told me, host parties, par par party, host parties, community celebrations, because when people are partying, they tell the truth. <laughs> if you if you invite people to a formal meeting about the property, you're going to get a different kind of conversation and information than if you actually host parties and invite and invite people to share um, around questions that are more to the soul, like what crucible are you on right now? Or do you remember the day you were born? It's the little conversations like that that will leave a lot more imagination in the long run. Jesus was the best partier, and church people need to learn how to party. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, I'm going to start with one that just came in, um, in part because I think it, it uh, maybe directed to you, Mark, but others um, relates to a couple other chapters that people didn't hear about. So this one is, I'm curious about the future of churches in rural and small towns. How might their buildings and properties be creatively used for good? And I would add to that, maybe if you could comment on the two, chapter six and seven, um, about indigenous groups and uh, what's going on there as well. Right. Yeah, so... There is a chapter on um, on the rural church setting. Um, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of what we talk about with regard to development, uh, most specifically, and Kurt here have discussed, is many times more applicable in an urban setting. Um, but there is a lot of interesting stuff going on um, to explore ways that uh, rural churches can think differently about their property, too. Um, one of the most exciting that's talked about in um, Jenny's chapter on that is partnerships with healthcare uh, providers. So you have a situation where you have healthcare providers that want to get into a community, um, but they don't really have enough um, need to kind of build a permanent healthcare facility in that community, but they need to get in. Maybe it's two or three times a week um, for a few hours uh, to, to provide some um, healthcare. Um, and then you have churches that have space. Well, there you go, right? You can connect uh, the space that churches have um, with the need that the healthcare providers have, and then you have uh, an opportunity to really re-engage a community um, uh, through those services. Some rural churches have actually um, been, if they're near a highway or an interstate, have been um, looking at putting in um, electric vehicle charging stations 
um, just simply as a form of hospitality and a form of generating revenue and of just sort of reusing their property in a different way. So th those are really some interest. There are some interesting ideas um, uh, out there around uh, around rural churches. Your other question is um, was around indigenous land. So uh, I've told some people that I, I don't think I would have actually put this book out had we not been able to have a couple chapters on the question of indigenous land. Um, and the reason for that is that, especially when we're in a situation where we might be thinking about monetizing or sort of drawing financial value out of property or incredibly increasing the financial value of property, it's really important, I believe, to recognize that the land that essentially every church is on in the United States was at some point stolen from uh, people that uh, lived on that land prior to the church being on that land. And so as at least at a minimum, recognizing that and keeping that in mind and thinking through what the implications of that are if we're going to do multi-million dollar property developments on that land. And sometimes I will ask uh, congregations who are thinking about what are we going to do with this property or denomination that's closed to church? Why not just give it back? I mean, do we really need that all? Do we really need to sell it all for dollars? Could we not simply return some of it um, uh, to uh, First Nations people and let them use it? And the example I gave earlier, um, where that did just happen a few weeks ago, actually, in the uh, Portland area, is a beautiful example of, uh, of a denomination turning over a piece of church land to a coalition of indigenous organizations to put tiny homes on it um, to address a need that they see in their community. And so I think that I highly recommend people read those chapters. They're hard chapters. They will get right to the core of some deep theological and ethical issues. Um, but I, I think we can't have this conversation without uh, that element being explored. They are two of my favorite chapters, so thank you for that. Um, there's a, a group of related sort of um, online questions here. Uh, all the basically relate to how to get churches who are resistant or maybe not even aware, but maybe more even resistant to to doing something like this with their properties. And so that's kind of what is the most basic thing that uh, needs to be conveyed to those congregations. And then a little more specifically, how would one approach like a church executive team if you had an idea about this or how to encourage a church to do this? Um, and then a related question, who needs to be around the table for some of those conversations? And maybe, Cote or Joe, if you had maybe some experiences with some people within your own congregations who were resistant or, you know, groups like that. So I don't know if we'd like to field that question. What do you think, Joe? Any thoughts? Was everybody on board right away, Joe? <laughs> um, in our situation, you know, our church was about to crumble. Our roof was about to fall in. We had uh, two fires in a 16-month period. We had to do something. Um, was everybody on board with doing what we were talking about doing? No, I think there was fear as to how do we do, how do we afford it? Where are we going to find the money? Um, how's this going to happen? All of those different questions that 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 needed to be answered, um, and you know the faith journey begins, right? Uh, but uh, I I I think that that that's all a part of the process, and we need to be prepared to be able to deal with all of that as we move forward. 
of the questions I like to ask um, congregation leaders when they're thinking about this is a sort of legacy question. And so I like to ask people to just envision returning to their church's land 50 years from now, which is probably in most cases past the life of most of the people in that conver conversation. And to think just what's happening there. Like, let's come back 50 years from now. What's happening on that land? Because we, at this moment, are stewards of this land and of these buildings, and we have an opportunity to shape what will be there 50 years from now. Um, and I think sometimes that helps just to reframe a little bit. This isn't just about today or tomorrow or even really just about us. This is about a stewardship of this a gift that um, that in some ways we we have and that God has sort of allowed us to make use of for some period of time. And um, we have a really uh, amazing opportunity and responsibility to think about what that might look like down the road. Great. I think we have a question here. In the uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, this is fantastic. Love the book and project. Joe, you were getting Isaiah 61 uh, in my mind with the, you know, restoring streets to dwell in. Uh, so that's beautiful. But my question is specific to this context, Madison. So sorry for those outside of it. Since we're here in the room in Madison and I see, you know, architects and lawyers and accountants and engineers and then co-founder of Rooted Good, I'm here and, you know, UW planner, planning professors, what's happening here that you guys are aware of related to efforts to um, intentionally, proactively redevelop, repurpose uh, church buildings. Is there movement on that front? Talk about that some, whoever can. Yeah, so as you're aware, uh, a number of churches in Madison have already gone through the process. A number of them are at various stages in the process. And I would say um, one of the things I, I can guarantee you is that city planning and city community development staff are aware of this issue. People like Julie Spears in the city are already connecting with some churches. So the first thing I would do is if someone asked me about a church, I would I would, I would would send them to Julie Spears in the community development department. And I'd say, go talk to Peter Tan, an architect uh, who's sitting in the room, right? Or if you're interested in senior housing, Ann Michaels there, Ann, right? So there's, uh, I don't know of anything formal, but I'd say we're kind of ahead of the game because... Um, our city planning staff is aware of this issue and is deeply committed. And of course, you know, that part of the challenge is you're probably familiar with Peter Beeson and the uh, Lutheran Church right in the square that's um, going to redevelop their property for ground level church and, and ministry space and service to the homeless, but then affordable housing and, and above. Um, do you want one, one actually really exciting thing that is happened happened in Madison very recently, which you might be able to speak more to, Kurt, is the update to the comprehensive plan. So an interim update to the comprehensive plan, a sort of a five-year update that just went through at the end, in the end of December, I believe, the city council approved, actually does uh, now allow for or make room for um, a slightly higher density development on church and other uh, properties like churches. Yeah. Um, it's different than zoning, and it's sort of beyond my understanding of all those layers, but um, but it, it's a result of this. So some right. conversations happened over the summer with city planning staff and with the plan commission. Um, I, I did some testifying at a meeting and we, you know, tried to just raise this issue basically just to open up possibilities. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it makes yeah. more possible um, in, uh, in, in the Madison area. So that's and, exciting. And, and the city staff is very much aware of the fact that, again, you can't force a private landowner 
to build affordable housing and community development, but boy, you have an opportunity to really partner with churches. Um, eventually, there'll be some funds, I think, available for kind of pre-development. Because one of the things the book talks about is if you're a church and you're thinking about doing property development, the pre-development phase can be $150,000 of hiring architects, engineers, and you know most churches don't have that up front. Have you found that the city staff, I mean, I know Julie Spears pretty well, like sympathetic? I mean, it's supportive so far yeah. in the conversations and interactions locally? Yes. yes. Thanks. And that's what I would encourage to any city is even start a conversation within your planning and community development staff. Like, what are the opportunities here and who wants to work on this? Even if it's just not official, but, you know, use their expertise to help. I do think it's a little bit new to them, the scale of it. So I think what where we've been is sort of a trickle of a church here and a church there. And I think what we're talking about now is that it's going to be 20 churches and 30. You know, it's going to be numbers of churches, not just one here, one there. And therefore, the process and the pace and the methodology is going to have to be a little bit different. Because if every one of them goes through a two, three-year, <laughs> it's just going to be too slow, right? So that, I think, is shifting a little bit. But yes, I found them to be quite open and uh, around this conversation. Um, this is a question for all of you guys. Um, um, the, the question, um, that, um, I think your name is, um, Kurt, Kurt, sorry, Kurt. Um, um, you brought up funding as an issue and I'm, I'm, uh, very curious Yeah, where does a church, urban church or whatnot come up with the funding for this? And, um, you know, I noticed, um, that sometimes they get funding from local community groups. It seems like if they're low income, they might get funding from the government. What conditions come with the funding? And what do churches do with regards to the conditions put on them? Yeah. So how long do we have? Okay. <laughs> so what uh, if you look at Patrick um, Duggar's chapter, there are many denominations that do have a church and building loan fund or have assistance from the denomination for kind of some of the initial feasibility studies, the initial planning grant. But oftentimes a low income church that's thinking about this doesn't have any money up front. So that's why they go to the, the developer right away, and the developer says, oh, I will do this on spec, not realizing, of course, that they will then capture a large part of that development fee on the back end. That's why the, the chapter with by Phil and, and Jill and Andre about development advisory, they do the same. They're a, a development advisory company. They do it on spec. So they will start doing the consulting with a church all the way to the community discernment, the congregational discernment, but also feasibility studies, architecture, engineering, city planning, feasibility. And they will do that on spec so that they get paid then when the project closes on the development deal. That's often hard to ask a lot of professionals to kind of give their professional work on spec and maybe get paid later and maybe not, right? And so one of the things they talk about is either cities or denominations or philanthropies can create these kind of pre-development advisory services just to help churches go through the initial process of what does the rezoning look like? What is the soils? What is the sewer and water capacity in terms of feasibility? Uh, does that? I hope that answers your question. But that's the issue, right? Because a church that doesn't have the money is either not going to do the process or they're going to do it poorly by just quickly going to, to a developer who will promise them a lot, but also then extract a high fee. 
Oh, the condition tied to the money. Yeah. If you take any government money at all, you are tied to federal fair housing law, which is a good thing, right? But there's a case study in the book of a church that sold their land for limited amount of money. They thought that their resident, their members would be the ones to get uh, the housing. But no, you have to use a lottery and you have to have a fair housing process. So once you take government money, which is good, you, you do, it comes with all the public reporting, the fair housing requirements. And so just to be clear, churches can accept government money for development projects. It, it doesn't violate church and state. And there are many cases where a city could enter into a development partnership agreement with a church, right? TIF, land concessions, property abatements, all these as part of the development deal. That doesn't violate church and state. But that's where helping having a development advisor really is helpful because you got to know what you're doing because... There's layers of financing, each with their own strings. Okay, thank you. I think we're going to see okay. one more. Could I add to that? Could I add to that real quick? One online, and then I'll I'll close with the. Could I, I add to that real? Oh, Joe. Yeah. Did you want to add Joe, to that? Yeah. I I just wanted to add to that real quick. I wanted to stress that um, money follows mission, and if we if we stick to mission, money will follow. And if we organize, I think there's there's a great, great, great opportunity through community organizing. If churches engage in community organizing, back to the relationship piece that Cote was talking about a little while ago, um, in, in organizing community and organizing around uh, what it is that a community wants to see built, you can leverage dollars from various uh, uh parts of the three sectors that make up every community, private sector, government sector, public sector. And, and there's an opportunity to attract pre-development monies in that, um, monies that will not be penalized. Uh, I, I use the word penalized, uh, monies that will not be lost at the end of the deal because of an arrangement with a developer at the beginning. I think that's very, very important for um, churches to embrace that opportunity. The other piece real quick is this is an opportunity and, and, and Mark touches uh, on this somewhat uh, uh, in his in his first book, We Aren't Broke, but this is a great opportunity for denominations of, of across the board who have all of this money sitting in, in investment accounts uh, generating interest and the like. This is a great opportunity to set up um, pre-development funding for congregations that show they have legitimate projects that can transform community so that churches can go readily to uh, an investment fund in which to be able to get funds to do pre-development. Yeah, thank you. Um, exciting, great conversation, uh, but I'm not a developer. I'm not an architect. I'm not an urban planner. I'm a theologian. So the conversation also makes me sad to a certain degree. And I'm just curious, before we turn all sanctuaries in our cities into community centers, is there um, something like a question where we share sanctuaries where we develop multi-faith spaces 
Um, maybe that's the way to go. I, I mean, the trend, the numbers are clear, but from more from a theologi uh, theological or spiritual perspective, um, are there other ways to use um, the churches that are no longer attended Sunday mornings? Is, is that something that came up in develop, uh, de um, designing, uh, putting the book together in your conversations? So just curious um, what you do with that. And it's a great question. And I, I also think, as I mentioned at the beginning, recognizing some of the sadness is totally appropriate. I mean, this is not, there's great opportunity, but there is, there is some, some lament there, you know, for some of these changes for sure. Sure. Joe, you look like you got something to say though. So. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's a great opportunity to turn what may be sadness into glad. Um, you know, what we did in, in our space is, you know, we, we maintained our sanctuary. We, we maintained our sanctuary. We, we knocked out the walls on the side because was part of what we needed was more space for worshipers. So we went from a 300 seat sanctuary to a 500 seat sanctuary. But what we did was we knocked out all the pews on the, on the, on the, on the main level. We maintained pews in the balcony, but we knocked out all the pews on the main level we have chairs and we created a multi-purpose space for our sanctuary, which honors the sanctity of the space, of the worship space. But it also opens the worship space to the opportunity to do different things. So we've had we've had concerts there, we've had plays, um, we've had motivational speakers come, we've had graduations. We've had all the things that that really represent uh, uh, the broad aspect of worshiping uh, that a community brings. That that is that is not just uh, centered in 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 what we understand the sacred being, uh, but that expands the sacred into community in some creative way. So so yeah, there's a sadness to it, but there's a gladness to it if we really open space to community and be creative in that space. Uh, in ways that worship God and that encourage community. May I say something to that? Yes. And I was going to give you the last word, Cote. This will be the last. Word. Oh, but um, we have, um, I feel that as, as, as religious people, um, we do have a mission to um, present an alternative to the profiteering and exploitation of land, pe people, and environment. We have a mission to restore, and that involves to connect deeply with our tradition of believing that the world as God created, in the world as God created it, everybody has what they need to thrive, survive, to have um, to have relationship. This is where it's important for us to open up to discern what are the roles of the spaces that we steward, that we hold. Not just for, they, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is not a prescription for what the space will be. That the utilization of the space needs to be discerned with community, with God, with the congregation. And the existence of places for worship, for connection, for um, meditation, for centering, they are not for production. Those spaces are important in the life of a community. 
Um, so I love that you said like not everything can be a community center. It shouldn't be. Whatever that space is going to be needs to truly follow what the dreams of God and the community are. And we need to discern it in prayer. And we need to discern it with the seriousness that it requires. Some will need to be affordable housing because that is what's needed in the community. But it, it, it doesn't take away the opportunity to create more space for connection, for connection with, with God, for connection with one another. Um, we're still the church. <laughs> right. We have a to play in, in, in society, in, in nourishing uh, personhood in, in, in society. Thank you, so Thank you all so much for this conversation.